Now it's Media Watch. This week, Colin Peacock looks at how this week's uh, epic budget sidestepped the pressing problems of the media. And we hear from one of the main Māori voices in the press pack at Parliament. But first, how the bid to blend our biggest news publishers ended up in court this week. Two of the country's biggest media outlets are butting heads over a proposed merger. Early this morning, newspaper and radio operator NZME revealed intentions to purchase news outlet Stuff for $1. The media company said it had asked the Commerce Commission to make an urgent decision by the end of the month to allow the deal. But shortly after, Stuff's Australian owner, Nine Entertainment, claimed discussions between the two ended last week with no plans for a sale. That was TVNZ presenter Simon Dallow on TVNZ One News last Monday. And while that strange media story startled the media industry when it broke that morning, that was about as much coverage as it got on the 6pm TV news that night. And you could understand that. The big announcement on moving to Level 2 had been made that afternoon, covered live on TV by Simon Dallow and others just a couple of hours earlier. So predictably, that eclipsed most of the rest of the day's news from then on. But there was plenty more said about that latest move in the long-running saga of the proposed merger of New Zealand's two biggest publishers of news, the Herald's owner, NZME, and Stuff, publisher of most of the country's daily papers and the employer of more of our journalists than any other outlet by far. Now what's at stake here is the future of the vast bulk of our daily and weekly papers, our two biggest news websites by miles, and half of the country's radio stations owned by NZME. And how it all shakes down in the end will have a huge impact on New Zealand journalism, and by extension, our public life. NZME has sought to merge with stuff since 2016, and it's spent lots of time and money pursuing this so far, in spite of knockbacks from the competition regulator, the Commerce Commission, and the courts. Last Monday, NZME made a surprise statement to the New Zealand Stock Exchange to say it was shaping up to buy stuff for the nominal sum of $1 from the Australian media company that now owns stuff, Nine Entertainment. NZME urged the government to make that possible by unblocking the Commerce Commission's opposition to the deal and fast. NZME said this had to happen by the end of the month, not so much fast-tracking the deal as turbocharging it. NZME also reminded the government while it was at it that the offshore owner of publisher Bauer Media folded most of our top magazines last month in the middle of the Level 4 lockdown. And NZME told the government its acquisition of stuff was important to the continued operation of a robust fourth estate and the plurality of voice in this country. And there, NZME was echoing the words that the Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy and the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern had both used when asked about the existential threats facing news media companies right now. But across the Tasman, the owners of Stuff, Nine Entertainment, told the stock exchange there on Monday that negotiations with NZME had already concluded without a deal. Indeed, Nine Entertainment went further by saying it had terminated further engagement with NZME, which sounded pretty terminal for its plan to take over Stuff for $1. Then NZME's chief executive Michael Boggs took it up another notch, insisting that Nine Entertainment was still obliged to negotiate exclusively with his company over Stuff. Meanwhile, Stuff staff here were scratching their heads on the sidelines. Stuff's chief executive Sinead Boucher told her staff there was no deal to sell Stuff to NZME and they couldn't understand the stance taken by NZME. So where then was all this really heading? While TVNZ's Simon Dallow described the two companies as butting heads, the former editor of The Herald, Tim Murphy, reckoned it was like a relationship gone wrong coming to an end. 
Tim Murphy, who's now the co-editor of the online service Newsroom, wrote that while NZME wants to hook up, stuff had moved on, and evidently stuff's parent company wasn't about to give its blessing to a marriage now anyway. Years of attempts to merge our largest publishers might just have been extinguished in 90 chaotic minutes on Monday morning, Tim Murphy reckoned. And he added that no government would change the law for that in a hurry when the two parties were obviously so much at odds. But another veteran journalist, who also operates an independent online news outlet these days, had a very different view. Business Desk founder and editor Patrick Smelly wrote the same day that NZME's effort to push the government into a fast-tracked merger with stuff might just work. If important news companies thought of as too big to fail do go to the wall in the fallout from COVID-19, the government may not want to be cast as a bystander again. And with unprecedented calls being made all over the place right now, intervening in the way NZME suggested might not be out of the question. And Patrick Smelly reckoned that end-of-the-month time frame was the key. He said he believed that Nine in Australia was ready to close stuff down by then, and he believed the Australians had said so to government ministers and officials here. And that would be a disaster for New Zealand journalism, especially in regions served by mastheads like the Southland Times, Manawatu Standard and the Waikato Times. Now, none of this has been confirmed or denied by anyone this past week including Andrew Holden, who worked for Stuff's parent company in Australia as editor of Melbourne Daily The Age after a stint editing the press in Christchurch. These days, he's the weekly media commentator on RNZ's Nine to Noon show. And last Tuesday, he told the host, Catherine Ryan, this. All I can add to that is I've reached out to my sources in Australia and they're telling me that at Nine Entertainment head office in Sydney, May 31's not a date that's being bounced around in there is the end of stuff. So it leaves it in a very, very murky situation, doesn't it? Well, yes, it does. And Catherine Ryan noted that the Prime Minister did little to disperse the murk with her replies to the reporters' questions about it that day. And she replied to the journalist, there are a lot of assumptions built into that question. Again, there's commercial sensitivity here and there may be more than one group that's involved in this scenario. So it's not for me to enter into any dialogue uh, on that further. Now, I don't know whether that refers to the two parties or whether that refers to the potential that there's a third party waiting to get in the queue. But one who was happy to say what he thought about the NZME play for stuff, at length, was Stuff's own political editor, Luke Malpass. In a long and withering article, he said Nine is not shutting down Stuff on the 31st of May, and he accused NZME of trying to talk down Stuff's value while pushing the government to ease through a deal to buy it. But that wouldn't work, he insisted. The cack-handed attempt by indebted media octopus NZME to browbeat Nine Entertainment into selling its stuff for $1, he said, spectacularly blew up in its face. That's strong stuff, not to mention career-limiting if stuff did ever come under NZME's ownership. But Luke Malpass had no doubt that that wouldn't happen. It's understood that Nine's attitude now is that it will sell its Kiwi arm to anyone but NZME, he wrote. But that Kiwi arm will only be sold to anyone else over NZME's dead body, it seems. On Thursday afternoon, NZME applied to the High Court for an interim injunction against Nine Entertainment negotiating with any other possible buyer. In court, Stuff's lawyer argued that NZME was trying to damage Stuff rather than actually acquire it. And the judge has reserved her decision on that till Monday, with the expectation it'll be made public Tuesday. So both parties and any other possible buyers will have to wait and see. And likewise, the news consuming customers of both outfits concerned about where their news might be coming from in the future. 
This week we hope to talk about all this with the Chief Executive of NZME, Michael Boggs, who's also the recently installed chair of the Newspaper Publishers Association, the umbrella group representing the mutual interests of the major news publishers. We would also like to have talked to him about the big picture issues facing the news media right now, including what help it is they're hoping for from the government to safeguard the future of journalism. But Michael Boggs declined to be interviewed here on Media Watch this week while the injunction process was still before the High Court. Now, with all this going on, there was another factor looming large. Details of the $50 billion rescue and recovery package unveiled by the government on Thursday, Budget 2020. Last month, $50 million worth of short-term measures were rolled out for the media, but mostly of benefit to broadcasters in what the Broadcasting and Digital Media Minister Chris Farfoy described as an adrenaline shot for media companies after the sudden slump in revenue caused by COVID-19 and the lockdown. The minister also said there would be more as part of the budget process, but on Thursday, after saying recovery packages for sports and the arts were just days away from finalisation, the finance minister Grant Robertson said this in his budget speech to Parliament. Mr Speaker, further sector packages, including for the media sector, are being developed over the coming months. Grant Robertson last month called the media a patient with pre-existing conditions when he talked about the impact of COVID-19. Maybe he's confident that stricken media companies do have more than mere months to live. Well, in the meantime, the budget did boost spending on public broadcasting from $148 million this year to $153.5 million next year. The Wellbeing Budget 2020 document said an additional $6.2 million a year for five years has been devoted to alleviating financial pressures on crucial public media platforms for underserved audiences. The money will go to the government's broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air to support the Pacific Media Network and captioning and audio descriptions for disabled people. And in a statement of its own, New Zealand On Air said it was delighted and community access radio and student radio will also benefit. But what it described as a timely lifeline for vital public media platforms is smaller than the new sums to be spent on other stuff from the vote for arts, culture and heritage. For example, $26.6 million in the same period has been devoted to saving the Crown's audiovisual collections and there's $146 million for a new Archives New Zealand facility for our documentary heritage in Taonga. In its roundup of winners and losers from the budget, Stuff's political gallery staff noted that the film industry continues to enjoy the government's favour, with $140 million set aside next year for the screen production grant subsidies. That's the incentive scheme to attract international movies and TV productions to these shores. That's three times as much money as the annual budget for RNZ, noted the gallery staff at Stuff, to make possible cultural gems like Aquaman and The Meg, they added sarcastically, though those subsidies of course are only paid out once money is spent here by those foreign filmmaking companies. And Stuff's reporters went on to put the media in the losers category in their budget winners and losers list. This week we also asked to speak to the Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media about the government's plans for helping the media financially. His office told us though he wasn't available for interview this week, but he did confirm media support will be part of the further wave of initiatives that the Minister of Finance has signalled will follow from Thursday's budget, including a second media support package for longer term initiatives.
But media companies worried right now about their short and medium-term futures will also be concerned about just how long the government's idea of the longer term is. Government ministers not being available for interviews about COVID-19 recovery measures certainly fired up the parliamentary press gallery last week when a leaked memo came to light along with a huge load of newsworthy official documents released to them on a Friday afternoon. As we heard here on Media Watch last weekend, NewsHub's political editor Tova O'Brien told her viewers the government had been as cynical as it gets. One thing that's not in this pile of documents is an email that was leaked to NewsHub from the Prime Minister's office to all of her ministers, gagging them from speaking to the media. It says they're only allowed to provide brief written responses to the media, that the Prime Minister would have to approve and sign all of those off. It provides specific talking points to keep her ministers on message. And get this, it even says there is no need to defend the COVID response. Instead, quote, we can dismiss and, quote, do not put this is up for interviews on this. And this past week, political reporters were still unhappy about that. The Sunday Star Times editor Tracy Watkins said that this was a first-term government acting with the arrogance of a third-term one. And on News Talk ZB the same day, New Zealand Herald editor Shane Curry pointed the finger at the spin doctors. Probably the most telling comment in the, in the memo from the Prime Minister's office was that, hey, look, you don't actually have to comment to the media. Most of the New Zealand public think that we've handled the crisis uh, perfectly fine. Yeah. And, of course, that probably gives you more insight than anything in terms of the way that the, um, the PR handlers, I guess, uh, are treating it all. And one of his political reporters at the Herald, Jason Walls, later said on News Talk ZB that the government and the Prime Minister had damaged their own reputations acting in this way. This government that have been praised for doing such a good job, and then you've got Jacinda Ardern, who's the, basically the queen of kindness out there, talking about how important um, this sort of stuff is. And then for there to be a memo that says, oh, basically, New Zealanders think that we're, we're doing great. We don't have to be as transparent and front up with ministers on this. A lot of people would have the right to be pretty disappointed in that, and I think including a lot of um, journalists in the press gallery, to be honest. And they certainly haven't hidden that disappointment in their own media outlets, as we've just heard. Another of the Herald's reporters, Derek Cheng, went for it in print with a strong piece for last weekend's Herald on Sunday. In a crisis, he said this was a slap in the face, not just for the fourth estate, but also for the public on whose behalf they work. And he reckoned it also undermined the access provided in the almost daily press conferences which were broadcast live throughout Alert Levels 3 and 4. Now, at those press conferences, some political reporters were not backward in coming forward to confront the Prime Minister on political issues like that. Each day, the public saw and heard reporters out of shot, barking questions, sometimes simultaneously, to get responses on hot topics like contact tracing or the suffering of lockdown and locked-out business owners. But after halfway in those press conferences, there was often a change of pace and tone for a bit when one reporter posed questions which were quite different and often about issues affecting Māori. There is concern within Māori communities that Life after COVID will just continue to extend the gap between the rich and the poor. What can you do to, what will you be doing to make sure that doesn't happen? You will have heard me say from this podium before that this has to be uh, an opportunity for us to to finally close the inequities that we have. That was Heta Gardner, political reporter for Māori Television's Tao Māori News Service. When the Alert Level 2 rules were announced on the 7th of May, many reporters honed in on what would happen at bars and restaurants, but Heather Gardner asked Dr Bloomfield instead 
whether Māori would be able to practice hongi. It's time to do so. Let's just follow up question for um, Dr Bloomfield. You said, Dr Bloomfield, uh, hongi will be an issue for iwi and we will provide guidance on that. Could you explain what you mean? Well, I think the decision lies with individual iwi about hongi, but we'll um, have our our Māori uh, team, uh, led by um, John Whanga, provide advice and in discussion and consultation with our Māori advisory group. So the reason, Dr Bloomfield, you said specifically that hongi will be an issue for iwi, is that because hongi, you believe, uh, has added risks uh, for communities? Heta Garden is one of just two Māori journalists who regularly attended the Beehive briefings during Level 3 and 4. The other was TVNZ's political reporter Mikey Sherman, a former colleague at Māori Television. On Wednesday, she was able to tell TVNZ One News viewers just why funerals and tangihanga restrictions and the controversial COVID-19 Public Health Measures Act mattered a lot to Māori. This is the first biggest public backlash we've seen with regards to the government's rules and restrictions around COVID-19. It could soon cost them in those Māori seats. Mikey Sherman, thank you. And in his questions at those press conferences, Heta Gardner from time to time has brought up the sort of smaller scale issues often overlooked by reporters much more focused on national politics and the pandemic. On April the 28th, for example, Heta Gardner raised a rahui put in place on the Waitahanui River east of Lake Taupo, which upset local anglers. And those not used to watching entire press conferences from Parliament noticed the less aggressive style in those moments when Heta Gardner was asking his questions. Now, Heta Garden has been a TV reporter since 2007, but many people didn't know whose the off-camera voice was, and on social media, some were trying to find out more about him, and even framing him as a bit of a cult hero. Now, as we've seen previously, some people don't respond well when Māori issues or language appear in the mainstream media, so this week, Hayden Donnell asked Heta Gardner how had people responded to his presence and his questions at those press conferences. Kia ora, kia ora Hayden. It's, it's been largely positive, which has been great. You know, I was the political reporter during the last uh, election where it was, it was quite the dogfight between Labour and the Māori Party, of course. When it comes to these briefings and these questions, I've been getting a lot of positive feedback and a lot of um, uh, messages daily of often strangers um, saying, look, I, I, you know, I, I came across your questions and they're really good and, and we really appreciate you giving that Māori perspective. And it's been really nice and, and encouraging, Hayden. It's interesting you say that, because one of the reasons that your questions stand out is that you often draw out issues, you say you have a Māori perspective, uh, that haven't been highlighted as much by the other media present. So May 7, for instance, you asked whether Hongi would be okay to carry out going forward into Alert Level 2. It's not really something that maybe was on the radar as much for other media. Is, is that something that you experience? The questions that I have and the perspectives that I have are quite niche when you look at the wider press gallery, right? In terms of the press gallery in those stand-ups, probably 17, 18 maybe people, and there's myself that has the mighty perspective, a couple of Australian journalists and a business journalist. Now, we're quite niche, and all of our questions are unique to our area of focus. But it's always been like that. Every time I go into that room, there's, there, there's one Maybe too, it's just been amplified in this situation because I'm the only person from Māori media in that room, which actually gives me a lot of freedom and it gives me um, a space that nobody else has. For example, when there's a big media story, right, Prime Minister's announcing when we're going to go to Level 2. 
every single mainstream media focuses on that one issue. And I think that's been a part of some of the flack. A lot of people are saying, well, they're all asking the same questions or asking about the same issue. And I come in and I ask a question about hongi or tangihanga or, or, or te tairawhiti or, or checkpoints, right? That actually gives me some freedom. Your organisation and Tao has this different focus. You have this entirely Māori remit, really, and these mainstream organisations have this more national remit. So how much of them not asking these questions that you're asking is understandable to you and how much is, is a little bit disappointing? Look, I'm aware that they are mainstream, right? And they won't be focusing on Māori-specific issues every day. That's not my expectation of them, nor do I think it should be anyone's expectation. In saying that, though, I would encourage those mainstream media outlets to always have a focus and always have a lens and an eye to the Māori issues. Because like you say, I've got quite a lot of positive feedback, right? And there's actually an appetite for Māori issues and Māori questions in that forum. I remember one conference where you talked about the rate of Māori testing positive for COVID-19. I think it was around 8%, whereas the population of Māori in New Zealand is more like 16.5%. And I guess that could reveal some pretty concerning practices by health officials, but it hadn't really been picked up on outside of your quest. Is, is that where you think there could be more representation and investigation in these areas? Representation? 100%, Hayden. Look, do we need more Māori in that press gallery? 100%. I'm that lone voice. I've been that lone voice the last seven weeks. It's like throwing a tic-tac in a tunnel sometimes, Hayden. I would not be able to cover a court story as well as a court journalist. I just won't be able to. I won't be able to do an education story as well as an education journalist, right? So I'm not trying to say that all of these mainstream non-Māori journalists need to be getting into this space and tucking in. We need more people in that press gallery and in journalism generally, Māori people that know how to do Māori stories with Māori focuses that are Māori in these mainstream setups. We don't have enough. There's myself, there's Mikey Sherman um, that have been in those press conferences. That's it. She's at TVNZ, right? She's a mainstream journalist. That's it. Of the 40 to 50 journalists there are in the press gallery, there are very, very few Māori. This has just put a spotlight on the issue. Um, The press gallery itself has actually been very, very encouraging. For example, yesterday I wasn't in Wellington. I was helping our team work out some coverage in Auckland, and nobody was there from Māori Television. And so I reached out to the press gallery and let, look, can I send some questions through? And they were very open to that, right? They, They went, absolutely, send the questions. They asked them, it was fine, right? So there's encouragement there, but there aren't enough. That's across the media space. If you're looking at all the main media outlets, there aren't enough Māori there. We know in the media that the faces on camera don't actually call the shots. We front it, we don't call the shots. The producers call the shots, right? The bosses call the shots. And so there's a space there. We are very much lacking having Māori in that space as well. Like you say, a spotlight's only on this now because the whole country is watching those press conferences and they notice when there's this same person at the same spot asking those Māori-pointed questions. A, a lot of the praise for your questions is just, you know, oh, I'm, thank God this guy raised this issue. But some people, I feel as well, there's this mix of kind of using your questions as kind of a cudgel to uh, criticise the more mainstream journalists there. You know, oh, well, why aren't they asking these questions? Are, are you comfortable with people doing that? 
the expectations on a mainstream journalist. You ask very different questions, for example, if you are asking a question to clip out for a two-minute two story for the news. I, I see a lot of flack to my colleagues in, in the press gallery. I feel, I feel a bit sorry for them. I also think, you know, these are real people. And the way in which questions are asked, well, depending on the format that you're editing it to, that's, that's something that, that people watching generally don't understand. Yeah, because there's different ways of asking questions and, and TV will have different uh, outcomes that they want out of an answer than a print journalist, for instance. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, some people have, have, have pointed out individuals and, and said, you know, oh, these are gotcha questions and those are wasted questions and all that stuff. Look, people have, have their opinions. And a good thing is, is is showing the volume of people that are actually watching and interested. People are at home. I mean, in Level 4, a lot of people are at home and, and, and you know, people get pretty bored if you're, if you're just chilling at home and every. Everybody's chucking in their opinions, which is fine. Everybody has an opinion, but I, I, I would just caution a, a little bit. These are people um, that are working hard, and they could very well see those comments too, you know. And you know, we're real people that see it, so so a bit wary before the before the personal attacks is all I would say. Uh, one thing I wondered is the press conference setting itself pretty Pakeha in nature. I, I I think of the fact that everyone kind of yells over each other and jockeys for attention and that's gotten a lot of, uh, uh, I guess, attention from people. Uh, would that sort of uh, yelling over each other be as acceptable in in a purely Māori setting? That, that That's a great, great, great question, Hayden, because that is actually, I think, one of the reasons why Māori feel quite uncomfortable and intimidated in that environment. It is unnatural. It is still unnatural to me. Um, I'm not as... Um, forward and aggressive in those in those settings, right? I need to get my questions in, and and I will press for them, but I'm not comfortable um, yelling over other people. Uh, uh, and that's one of the reasons why Māori that come into that setting, because we have sometimes we have Māori come into that setting and they don't like asking questions and they don't ask questions because it's not an environment that that is very comfortable for us. Would it run the same way if it was run in a Māori way, in, in a Māori construct um, with Māori practices? Um, absolutely not. But that's one of the reasons why Māori often don't thrive to be political reporters. They see that combative Nate, the combative nature of how things are run. I mean, that you're exactly right. That screaming over um, each other, and I don't think anybody particularly likes it, right? But um, that's the nature of that's the nature of the beast. And no, Māori don't feel comfortable with that at all. One of the things that I notice about political reporters is they love that sort of back and forth, cut and thrust of politics, and they love the game. April 29, you asked, you know, uh, there's a concern within some Māori communities that life after COVID will just continue to extend the gap between the rich and the poor. It's not like inequality hasn't been mentioned by others, but do you think you're more focused on those structural overall issues that affect people on the ground? I look at the forum that's in front of us, and the forum that's in front of us is we get 45 minutes with the Prime Minister every day, and that's it. I also look at it in the space that I am the only Māori media journalist in that space. And my focus is to get genuine answers to genuine questions from the Māori communities. Again, I'm looking at questions that our people want to know and questions that actually they should be answering. I'm not looking at a sharp grab to make a story sound better. But I have the freedom to do that. Again, um, I'm, not, I'm not as tired as many of the other journalists as to what the angle is. I use that space to ask questions that I think the government should be thinking about. 
whether that reflects um, a good sharp grab in a two-minute story for myself. Well, often it doesn't. Often we get long explanations to those questions, right? But I ask the questions that if somebody's listening, what do they want to ask, right? What do they want to know about? I'm not thinking, okay, I want her to say this so that it comes off the grab that I already got from Simon Bridges. We can do that because, of course, we want people to tune in. We we want people to watch. We want to motivate people to to get into our content. But we are not tied to that ratings, money, scope. On a more personal note, do you feel a little bit lonely as as often the only Māori person asking questions from a Māori perspective in the press gallery? It's not lonely and it's not isolated, but it is is clear to me that, that I'm basically in a lane all of my own. Would I rather there are a lot of us? Yes, and, and I look at uh, places like RNZ. RNZ have a superb Māori unit, and they have excellent journalists, and if they were sitting there next to me in that room, that would add so much value to the people at home. And I, I, I feel more sorry, not for myself, because, oh, well, you know, no, we are some friends that will ask similar questions. I actually feel more sorry for our people at home and our Māori people at home that everything is on me. Look, there are people that are Māori journalists that would ask Māori specific questions that I, I, wouldn't, I just wouldn't have thought of and they would be great and they would be put in front of the Prime Minister and we're holding them to account and the reason why I would really want a Māori team there from other news outlets, right, more Māori there, less so so that I would feel less lonely but more so for our people at home Hey, thank you so much Heta, I really appreciate your time Awesome, no worries Hayden that was Heta Gardner, political reporter for Māori Television's Taiao News Service, talking there to media watchers Hayden Donnell. And you can hear more of what they had to say to each other in the online version of the story that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, or you'll find it on the RNZ app. Now, one of many things that was pushed back by the COVID-19 crisis was a long-running review called the Māori Media Sector Shift. This was touted as a blueprint to rejig publicly funded Māori media for the digital era, and among the issues under consideration was whether news could be better covered by combining existing news services for radio, TV and online. The Māori media sector shift review was due about the time the COVID crisis struck, but hasn't emerged yet. We'll have more on that in the future, though, here on MediaWatch. But for now, that's all from the Media Watch team for this week. Hayden Donnell will be back with Week Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night during Nights with Brian Crump. And then we'll be back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National. Thank you, Colin. Media Watch from Colin Peacock and Hayden Donnell. You can listen back to their episodes and all our conversations on Sunday morning by putting RNZ Sunday morning into the search engine.